welcome to In the Weeds with Nicole Asquith, exploring the way culture shapes our relationship to the natural world. You know how it goes. It opens on breathtaking views of mountains, forests, and clear streams. You hear the sound of tires hitting the dirt, perhaps the shifting of the gear, the revving of an engine. In comes the deep, resonant voice of a Sam Elliott or a Brian Cranston. There's still some wild out there. And then, the truck, jeep, or SUV cuts through the landscape. There are no other cars in sight, often not even a road, just a path forged through the wilderness. For decades now, car manufacturers have been selling SUVs and the like with fantasies of off-roading in nature. What is this fantasy all about? To answer this question, I reached out to Chris Shaberg, the Dorothy Harold Brown Distinguished Professor of English at Loyola University, New Orleans. He's published three books on airports and air travel. He's co-edited two essay collections, including one called Deconstructing Brad Pitt, and is founding co-editor of a book series called Object Lessons, which explores the hidden lives of ordinary things. As it turns out, he also wrote his master's thesis on SUV ads, relating them to the work of American nature writers. Before talking, he and I emailed back and forth with links to different commercials we wanted to discuss. In the episode, you'll hear excerpts of some of them. You'll also find some links in the episode notes in case you'd like to take a look at them yourself. To begin, I asked Chris how he stumbled upon this topic. I think it probably all started in the late 90s when I was in college, and I... I had written an undergraduate thesis about the works of Gary Snyder and just kind of imaginaries of, of mountain landscapes and, and the American West. I grew up in Michigan, and so I was kind of fascinated with the West and eventually found my way out living in Bozeman, Montana, where I did my master's program. And so this would have been around like 2001, 2002. And there was a moment there, I was still sort of studying like Western American literature and the kind of uh, wilderness imagination. And I remember I had a subscription to the New Yorker that my uh, mom would get me as a Christmas gift every year. And I remember just noticing several issues in a row, these Subaru ads stand out to me specifically, but also Lincoln Aviator, I think that was it, or Navigator, both of those. And then, of course, the Chevy Blazer. I remember seeing these these magazine ads and just sort of being a little struck by, well, what is what is this need for these ads that depict these romantic mountain landscapes in the New Yorker magazine, which is this kind of, you know, hub of cosmopolitanism and urban hip, you know, literary culture. Like, what's going on here? What is this... What is this dynamic? And the more I, I started looking at these ads in tandem with reading the works of still Gary Snyder, but also whether it's Edward Abbey or Annie Prue or Gretel Ehrlich or Terry Tempest Williams, thinking about the ways that these car ads were yoking kind of similar tropes and ideas about landscape and wilderness that some of these, you know, well, I guess we call them nature writers, were also um, employing and exploring, but to quite different ends, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the kind of nexus that originally brought me to thinking about these specifically SUV ads. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It's interesting that you were had sort of an interest in the Western landscape. And I mean, I, I think that at their best, these ads and these commercials do a very effective job of 
calling up that sort of romantic imagination, the the history, the ideology of the West, and so on. So I thought we could talk a little bit about the history of car ads and commercials. The earliest ad that we know about is from 1898 for the Winton Motor Carriage, and it had the caption, dispense with a horse and save the expense, care, and anxiety of keeping it. And I, I found it helpful to remember that cars, of course, replaced horses, and to think about how that in and of itself sort of shifted people's relationship to the natural world. And also interesting that that history, that relationship is still at play. I mean, even in car commercials that you see today. So for instance, there's a recent Ford commercial that builds on the history of the brand that opens with. Here's what happened. Americans wanted a faster horse. So we built them a car. Cars began coming off the assembly line at the rate of one. Mm. Um, so I was wondering if you have any thoughts about that aspect of this history and the way it's kind of appropriated in, in uh, car advertising. Well, it's really interesting that you bring us back to that example. And then, and then yeah, these, these very contemporary examples of like the Ford Bronco and the running wild horses. Um, and it makes me think that, and I hadn't really thought about this before, but that the car in general, but maybe the SUV specifically, is sort of vexed by this, by our own relationship to our, our animality. I mean, we're trying to like get away from a horse or, or improve on the horse as a means of transportation. But, you know, it was also a, a curiously kind of collaborative, you know, interspecies relationship there. So, so we want to change that. But now and now we have this thing, the car, which, you know, weirdly, 120 years later brings us right back to our, our, our relationship. And I, I kind of lack, really, of needing to get back to the horse, get back to the places where wild horses run free. So it, it would be interesting to, to look for or think about other instances where there's like the human and the animal and the car and how those triangulate. I guess one, one thing I think of is how Subaru really plays up the presence of, of the dog. And you've got like the Subaru and the, the driver and the dog. And there's like this love triangle there. Hmm, but that's I don't know. This is just one sort of. No, no, it's interesting. I was, you know, I, funnily enough, I was thinking about my dog. So I have a dog <laughs> who features frequently in my podcast and, uh, I, you know, it's been really an intense relationship for me. And I think that part of it is just that craving for animal connection. And of course, when we had horses, that was part of it. And so it's interesting what you're describing, this kind of push-pull, like initially sort of, uh, you know, thinking, like you said, we need to improve on the horse. But then there's this kind of nostalgia, you know, right. this sort of desire that wants to pull us back to that animal connection. It even makes me think of that Joe Biden ad, um, I, I don't, I don't want to diss Joe Biden today, especially. But um, that Joe Biden ad where he was driving his was it a was it a Ford Mustang? I, I don't know my car as well enough, but he was you know shifting an, like an old model Mustang, I think, and talking about how he loved all the parts of it. And the, and the ad was very targeted toward I think um, like Michigan voters. Mm-hmm. We recorded our interview the Friday after the November election, and we're still waiting for the results of the election to be made official at that point. In the Biden commercial, Chris mentions the now president-elect is driving an old Corvette. I like to drive. I used to think I was a pretty good driver. (laughs) 
I didn't get a chance to flat shift in the second. I was afraid I'd go through those guys. <laughs> Tomorrow morning, we're talking about cars and what car you'd like to see come back. You know, the message there was that this candidate, it has a connection to the history of our, you know, U.S.-made automobiles. But even even in the way that there was a kind of like intimacy that was suggested between Joe Biden and his old car. And it's almost like there was something similar at work there. Like, look, this this person actually knows how to take care of a vehicle and how to drive a vehicle. And of, and of course, we know that especially in Michigan, the the car is something that is held very, you know, the, the American made car is something that is seen almost as an extension of of the people there. I mean, it is yeah. literally. But yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, patriotism is a big thread that runs through all of this, too, and is part of the romanticizing of the landscapes, of course. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. And I think, like, the kind of, I was going to say personification, but that's not quite right, but that, like, almost animalizing of the car is is another thing that comes up recurrently. Going back to the history, if I understand it correctly, in the first half of the 20th century, car ads tend to be more tethered to the modern world of which they are a part because of course that the novelty sometimes even futuristic mm-hmm. um and then it sort of starts to shift so the ad that i was thinking of is that famous pontiac ad from 1965 with the tiger skin on the hood do you know which one i'm talking about okay. i can send you a link if you I'll, want i'll look for, for um so there's a oh, there's, yeah, I see there's an ad and there's a commercial that goes with it. So in the ad, wow. there's a, a tiger skin spread out over the hood of the car. Oh my god! And the yeah. caption is, "There's a live one oh, under the hood." Amazing. Yep. Um, and then there's a commercial where I think there's a, a tiger that jumps out of the under you know under the hood of the car. Some sporting cars are only pussycats. Pontiac's GTO is all tiger. Agile, nimble. With plenty of growl, all white track. So that's kind of an interesting example, too, of like the car you know, renders it as an animal. And of course there are a lot of car names that evoke these often like predator type animals, right? Yeah. Or like (laughs) Um, the Mustang, which we just were talking about. Or the Mustang. Um, Yeah. The horse. Yeah. Right. This this Pontiac is so amazing. This ad because it's a dead tiger, right? It's like the skin of a tiger, (laughs) the pelt of a tiger on the hood. And then the, the language, you know, there's a live one under the hood. What, what, so where'd the dead one come from? Who killed the dead one? But I mean, the, 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 there's this like bizarre contradiction here between life and death and, and living and non-living. Oh, it's fascinating. It is really fascinating. Yeah, it's sort of like, I mean, so I feel like all of these commercials are wrought with contradictions. And that's part of what's fascinating about them. You know, starting <laughs> with the image of the car driving through the wilderness off-road you know, is inherently in contradiction because that's not how we experience cars, you know, 99.9% of the time. <laughs> so, and, and, and in the Pontiac case, it's sort of like, you're both the hunter who killed the tiger, but you are the tiger. Right, I don't know. It's hard right. to wrap one's head around. 
<laughs> yeah. Or you're driving the tiger. You're, you've harnessed the tiger. What is it? You know. And I mean, obviously, these. I mean, in a way, I think these commercials and ads always want it to be, you know, both and and another thing. It's like the, the contradictions are not uncomfortable for for these advertisements. They're actually kind of like part of the package because they want to, of course, like capture as many uh, different kinds of drivers as possible. Yeah. I feel like there's something there that I, I, I have yet to make sense of how it is that advertising can inhabit these contradictions and somehow it's okay. Okay, jumping ahead a little bit. So I was going to say, I think I'm a little bit older than you and I remember cars from the 1970s. And I remember sometime in the 80s, even in the 90s, really noticing the shape of cars changing. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, yep. Which I think is part of the advertising part of the kind of, you know, culture of cars and, and the kinds of fantasies or, you know, things that we project onto cars. I remember, I think it's around the time that SUVs were created, cars started to look like swollen toys to me or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Do you, do you yeah. have any thoughts about that, about what, what was going on with that? Well, it, it actually makes me think back to what you were saying about earlier alignments with like modernity and even futurity and then and then maybe we see like a in the second half of the 20th century more of a sense of like nostalgia or holding on to like the good times not so much like you know leaping forward and and then i think i would i would venture to guess that in the last 25 years or so it's been this very chaotic back and forth between those two modalities and in fact you see that in in the Toyota RAV4 ad that you sent me that one is incredibly futuristic and in in, in, a, in bizarre ways the commercial chris is referring to is called endless journey chase the unknown funny how they all have titles In it, you see a driver going through screen-shaped tunnels that lead to a series of somewhat bleak natural landscapes, which leads to more screens and more tunnels, as the driving had turned into a video game and the natural world had become virtual. And then compare that with the Bronco ad you sent me, which is all about nostalgia. And it's like, you know, we had it then and we're going to now we're now we're going to bring it back. And and it looks almost the same, just a little different. You know, and it's like going back to the frontier days, too. There's still some wild out there. Those grayed out sections on maps that map makers haven't gotten to yet. Places where cell service and calendar reminders don't exist. But you have to get out there and look for it. And to look for it. You need something that's just as wild as the wild. But to me, those two ads um, and and the ways really that those two different SUV models are newly shaped, one to look very futuristic and one to to resemble a car from 50 years ago or so, um, that was fascinating to me because I I feel like now we're in this place where we, we, we do not know whether we want cars to look futuristic or like something that was very familiar and comfortable to us. Um, and in fact, I mean, it also makes me think of that Tesla pickup truck that was, you know, premiered last year. What was that? And, and you know, people were just horrified at, the, at how that looked because it was so, it was too futuristic looking for most mm. people. 
Um, and, you know, people said this card looks like it was designed by, you know, like a middle schooler on his little notepad. And, and they actually made it, you know, it went too far in terms of its, you know, the, the, the look of its, uh, its shape, the feel of it. So right now it seems like we're in a kind of schizophrenic place with the, the shaping of vehicles, whereas it seems like it, it tracked in more decipherable patterns throughout the 20th century, maybe. So do you think that schizophrenic place is an indication of our anxiety about cars? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and, and more than cars, right? I mean, it, our place on the planet and how we move yeah. around and, and, our, and our responsibilities for how we move around and how we might change how we move around. Absolutely. And cars seem like, in some sense, they've become a symbol of climate change, even though obviously they're not the only thing contributing to climate change. But, you know... Yeah. Most of us have one, whereas most of us don't own like a jet or a factory or something like that. So it's sort of what identifies us with the cause of climate change. And so, of course, there's bound to be anxiety there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, In fact, I was I was listening on on the radio on the way over. There was a little spot um, with someone at GM. I think there was someone at GM talking about their ambitious moves towards electric vehicles, but how they can do it because they're still selling so many of the, you know, their pickup trucks. And it was this fascinating, like, you know, our, our, pick, our, our, our gas guzzling pickup trucks are still so popular that we can now invest robustly in electric, you know, and sort of like, wait a minute, mm. what, like, what we really <laughs> want here? I, I don't get it. Um, yeah. Which also reminds me of, I mean, my, my other interest is air travel. And whenever I hear, you know, aviation industry experts be like well the new planes are gonna be so much more fuel efficient but what they never say is like and we want to have twice as many in the sky which kind of like erodes the the fuel efficiency argument yeah 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 again this kind of schizophrenia yeah um so so let's talk about suvs a little bit because they're obviously crucial to well in a way this kind of inherent contradiction right sort of this fantasy of off-roading, but also the like ubiquitous car of the suburbs. Mm-hmm. So I, I delved into your master's thesis a little bit, and I, I love this description that you give. You say, the characteristic hybrid shape hovering somewhere between a minivan on steroids and a pickup truck outfitted for the apocalypse has been crafted into a cultural symbol that rumbles along suggesting prestige, power, and ironic twist of widespread self-reliant individualism. I mean, it's kind of a mouthful. That's what I was going to say, too. But I mean, I think appropriately so, right? In the sense that, like, it's trying to do so many things at once. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And trying to trying to uh, appeal to so many different desires and fears. Yeah. So what is it? What is it about us that requires a Jeep in order to live in the suburbs? I mean, I functionally, I don't own an SUV, but I do live in the suburbs now. And Functionally, I understand, you know, if you've got like, like we, we can only give one child a ride, for instance, mm-hmm. back in the time when you could do that sort of thing. So I, I, I get, you know, and people like the idea that, well, part of the problem too, is that everybody's got SUVs. And so everybody's got these massive cars on the road. So then you feel like you're safer if you also have a massive car. But yeah, yeah, but, that, yeah. But, but in a more cultural sense, too, it seems like there's something at play here. So what is it that makes Americans feel better about having these massive cars, do you think? Well, I, I mean, you're absolutely right to un- underscore that first point, which is the, the sort of safety argument, which is, is kind of specious, really. But then I think it's, I think there's something more deeply embedded and it, and, it, and it involves a kind of fantasy of like the possibility of getting away 
on the weekend or next summer, you know, and being able to just let out for the, you know, the wild spaces. Even if that never happens, that fantasy just sort of like hibernates in this vehicle. And I, I think there's a, any again, even if this is completely unconscious, because I'm sure that 70% of SUV owners have no plans to, you know, go to Wyoming or, or Utah, but still that fantasy resides in the vehicle and, and the potential of that vehicle. And I think, I, I think that it's a really strong fantasy that it, it's able to infuse even, you know, suburbs with a sense of like you're on the outskirts of the city. You know, it's probably, I mean, it's probably related mm. to white flight and, and racism, of course. I mean, just this idea that like when you need to get away, you'll be able to get away. It's interesting. I mean, it's interesting to me because part of what I'm thinking too is that I feel like there's this idea of the separation of wilderness from other spaces, from inhabited spaces. And yet, in a way, what you're saying is that this car kind of injects some of that wilderness into more domesticated yeah. spaces, um, yeah. which is kind of a curious oh my thing. Gosh. I mean, I. Yeah. No, <laughs> go ahead. I'm sorry. What were you going to say? <laughs> no, it makes me think of this amazing book that um, I had. We had it when I was a child. It's called The Baobab Car. Have you ever heard of this? No. It's this amazing book by, I think his name is Pierre Latan. And um, it's pretty hard to find now because I, I did manage to get a copy off of eBay recently or like a couple years ago for my kids. But it's about this man who drives a car and he lets his friends track mud in and he lets his dogs bring in all their – he has three dogs and lets them bring all their dirt in. And he goes to the beach and he brings in all the sand. He lets the sand – he lets his, his swim shorts dry on the back seat. And then one day a clever wind blows in a seed that starts to grow in the back seat and it ends up being a baobab tree. And he has to cut off the roof of the, of the car. And by the end, like, the, by the last page, it's this huge tree. And he's, there's this refrain throughout the book. It's not like, like, why would you let nature out of this car? Nature's healthy. Like, let the stuff in. It's this preposterous little children's book. And it's a, more like a wagon or maybe like a wagoneer, you know? But it, it just as you were talking, it, it reminded me of that book. And it makes me think about the ways that in another kind of bizarre contradiction the SUV in the suburb would seem to be like the antithesis of ordinary wildness. At the same time, it seems to be like doing that work, you know, if, if unconsciously and, and in a kind of distorted way. Well, I mean, just visually, there's such a contrast when you see these scenes of wilderness and then there's a car in the middle of it. And so I feel like your mind is constantly having to sort of parse out in a way technology from nature and to try and make sense of this relationship yeah yeah and and in this newest uh, this newest batch of of commercials the ones that we've been looking at over the last few days i noticed something very peculiar about the point of view of all of these like panning shots and it occurred to me aha there's a, there's a new technological motif in here that, that your mind is also having to square and that's the drone's eye view I think drone photography has also become an, a new way to kind of weirdly naturalize these scenes. There's yeah. even a commercial where a car has to fend off a bunch of drones. Have you seen oh that one? Oh, my gosh, no. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. I want to um, reference, so to go back a little bit, this is a two- 2003 ad that you talk about in your master's thesis. I just, since it's, it allows us to use text, 
I think it's helpful. And plus it's, it's clever. So it's a play on James Bond. Um, so you see an image of a car perched on a kind of plateau with rugged mountains in the background, you know, as is often the case, you think, how did this car possibly get there? And the caption is for those who like to be stirred by nature, not shaken. Um, I'll read the I'll read the caption underneath too, just so we get the full effect. If you get that a sport utility should be rugged, not brutish, then you'll get the new 2003 Subaru Outback, equipped with the rugged traction and control of Subaru all-wheel drive. The Outback can get you over rough terrain and deep into nature, but thanks to its new smoother riding suspension system, the going never gets rough, so you can experience nature's beauty without the trip getting ugly. The beauty of Subaru all-wheel drive. When you get it, you get it. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. So, so this was one you've thought about, um, obviously, because you wrote about it. So, oh, my goodness. Where to begin? <laughs> yeah, there's just so much there, right? I mean, I, I think this is what attracted I me. Mean, uh, you read that text, and you're just like, wow, there's so much packed in there. You know, like, there's so much like semiotic and psychoanalytic work going on from line to line. Um, yeah. And He's I guess a, that's he, why. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no I was just going to say these, these people who write ad copy, they know what they're doing. Yeah. They're not idiots. Yeah. No, they're not idiots. Um, I mean, they're, they're at turns like clever and, and cringeworthy, but just in the right way. And, and also kind of like, huh, you know, you don't want to think about that for a minute. You know, do I like to be shaken or stirred? Huh. You know? and do, did I like that last James Bond film? I don't know. Maybe I did. Maybe, maybe I should watch it again, you know. Um, is there a DVD player in this car? I don't know. I should, I should call Subaru, you know. Oh, my goodness. Oh. Well, and it, like there's so many different categories of these commercials. So I put this one among other things in that category of you get to have full access to nature but you don't get your clothes wrinkled, you know? I mean, it doesn't trouble you in any way. So the, the recent one that does that, which is just hilarious, is the one with Matthew McConaughey oh my and gosh, ice yeah. fishing. <laughs> yes. So it's called, so it's for the Lincoln Aviator. It's called Warm Escape. So he drives up off-road, of course, to a frozen lake. He drills a hole to do his ice fishing, but he just stays in the back of his car, which keeps him warm <laughs> until the flag pops up, indicating that he's caught a fish. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, it's very clever, but also just like your brain just wants to explode. I know. I was so glad you reminded me of this one because I remember seeing it and just being like, I, I, I don't even know where to, to you know, like, like there's so there's too many things to do with that. It's all it's also just like this kind of brilliant short film, and it's also you know it's so fascinating. It's ice fishing, which I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't know the dynamic here between like activity and passivity and luxury and roughing it and the sort of everyman story and then the celebrity. There's everything just just sort of poured into this ad. To the point where it's 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 absurd, and yet it's it's exactly the way they they would want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then that 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 tagline at the end, the power of sanctuary. I mean, I th- I think we have to just state the obvious, which is that the the fundamental contradiction at the heart of all of this is that, of course, it's cars that, not exclusively, but cars fundamentally are 
sort of the adversary in some way of, of these kinds of experiences due to climate change and the expansion of sort of human inc- incursion yeah. into these wild spaces. Even, yeah, even as you were saying, like, okay, like you park your Jeep, your, your big, one of those big Jeeps, Wrangler, I think, or no, I don't know what the, the big long Jeep or whatever. You, you park that in your suburban driveway and you, or your garage, better yet, and you think about the ways that, that you are not attuned to, you know, the insects moving around your house or the, or the plants in your yard. It, it just becomes this sort of object correlative for the disconnect between you and where you live. Mm-hmm. Even though it's also the thing that seems to, like, get you there and make you safer there. Yeah, well, it, like, literally cuts your skin off from yeah. the environment around you. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's intense. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm just having a moment here. One of the things that I wanted to talk about is this idea of naturalizing the SUV. It's one of the things that you write about as well. So can we talk a little bit about what it means to naturalize a car and what is at stake in that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so one of the ways we see it in that Bronco um commercial we were talking about earlier is setting the car among and next to um the horses running so that would be one way that i would see it as like being natural i was like oh it's just, it's just another like creature in this landscape that's one way another more curious way to naturalize it i, th- I think is when car ads really talk about like the ergonomics of the interiors and how it like conforms to you know the driver and passenger's bodies and you see like close-ups of like the leather seats or or the shifter and how it can like your palm can wrap around it that also i think would be a kind of like naturalizing of this of this vehicle or technology you know to to suggest that it conforms to and accommodates the human form almost as like uh, a prosthesis and then, and then, I guess the other obvious way is, as you were just talking about, I think the Trailblazer ad is, is like, you know, setting the vehicle in this space that it seems like it's just sort of like grown up organically out of the ground, or it just it just appeared there. It, it's naturally in place there, even though we know it's like, you know, ridiculous cinematography and and digital effects that that make these scenes. So I guess those are like kind of three ways that I would see of like naturalizing, like with other animals or smaller landscape features in in large kind of panoramic shots, and then also like how the interior is described or depicted as a kind of like atmosphere of its own. So as an extension of, of that, let's talk a little bit about nature with a capital N. So what would you say about how nature is depicted in some of these commercials? What what yeah, does it sort of yeah. implicitly tell us about the natural world? Well, and again, I think there's probably like several veins. I mean, there's the, we mentioned the romantic nature, which would be like the sublime nature as a kind of other that you can still yet like commune with or bond with and learn from. I think that's the romantic nature that we get in, in a lot of these ads. And then there's the the, the kind of idealized nature, which is you know, something so other that it's, you know, it, it's kind of inaccessible, but but always kind of hovering out there as a kind of platonic form almost, like the nature that kind of guides and governs us all. And you'll never be with it or be really connected to it, but you can like maybe get 
a little closer attuned to it through this vehicle. And then I guess there's also just nature as, as something that's a consumable and frankly disposable kind of surface, you know, something to be like used and, you know, harnessed when necessary, but then can also be like locked up and put away when you go back home. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess we could start with those three kind of different versions of capital N nature, the romantic mm -hmm. version, the idealized version, and the, the kind of consumer version. I'm just kind of making these. I, mean, I would I'm add one more, which is yeah, yeah, that yeah. There is, there's kind of an atavistic version of nature in which nature is threatening and oh, needs yeah. to be conquered in some way. So there's, in the research I did on the history of commercials, one of the earliest, I think, Jeep commercials shows a Jeep climbing a dam. So I guess, you know, that's also huh. a human surface. But, and then you have... Uh, I think these Ford Explorer commercials from like the late 90s, there's one in which it's underwater with sharks swimming around it. Oh, wow. And there's somewhere, I think there's like uh, mountain lions. Yeah, even I think, I guess that Matthew McConaughey one would, would I think, qualify as that kind of atavistic, that, that has the kind of like American naturalism strain in it. There's something Call of the Wild about that one, where it's like, you know, going out to this remote location, surviving in the car, finally catching a fish, you know, surviving. And that mountain is so imposing in the background, but right. not in a romantic way, not in a way that he's going to he's going to catch a fish and survive in the back of his Lincoln and then get back to civilization, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, under the category of romanticized nature, that also makes me think about the Wild West, which is a big part of this. So there's a there's also kind of a patriotic dimension to this, right? A notion of America, you know, this sort of very romanticized notion of American history and freedom and the freedom of the road kind of being associated with all. Yeah. <laughs> right. Is, is a part of it. Yeah. I, I, I think this is why when I was writing that master's thesis and I was still kind of thinking about and reading all of this, you know, Western American nature writing, but then also reading these ads and realizing like, oh my gosh, there are so many like similar tropes and you can actually just like replace words from these, you know, or you can like bring in ridiculous other kind of consumer objects and use the same phrasing and it, it, it works. Uh, you know, I, I was picking up on this, the kind of a very unsettling quality to both of these forms of of expression. In a sort of very basic sense, one of the things it indicates to us is that there is no end to the nature that can be consumed, right? Yeah. Um, wow. You know, maybe we could now look at the pale blue dot one. Okay, so sort of fast forwarding a little bit, there's all these things going on simultaneously in car commercials. Of course, it's not like they're delivering one message, but one new thread that is emerging is this nod to climate change, especially in those that are promoting electric vehicles, of course. And so this one, this is a very kind of fascinating commercial that uses the text and I think the voice of Carl Sagan to sell, what is it, a Jeep? I'm forgetting what it is they're selling. Yes, it's a Jeep. And mu music by Philip Glass, I will add as well. Oh my gosh. Did you send me this one? You haven't seen this one? Okay. I don't think so. Let me so. find no. it. Oh, goodness. All right. We've got to watch this. Hold on a second. Let me find it. All right. Um, so you've got it. So how about we hit play simultaneously? Okay. Just Does give me a countdown. Good? It sounds great. All right. On the count of three. You ready? Yep. One, two, three. From this distant vantage point, the earth might not seem of any particular interest. 
But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there. On a mote of dust, suspended in a sunbeam. That's insane, right? It is. Gosh. I mean, it strikes me that it's so relentlessly anthropocentric, mm. which in some ways is entirely not the, not the climate change lesson. <laughs> you know, it's not about just us. Yeah, although, I mean, I don't know, this depresses me, but I feel like it's sort of the only way that people get the lesson right i mean i feel like i feel like environmentalists have learned that they sort of have to make it about people or people won't care <laughs> yeah i mean maybe you're right i mean it is it's I, it will it would i don't know i always wonder like how do you how do you measure like the persuasive power of these i mean in the end they're trying to to sell this new electric wrangler wow that is uh you know, ostensibly more aligned with climate change awareness. And they know that a large contingent, I mean, hasn't Jeep been sort of, I believe Jeep has sort of been shown to be the, they're the most resource gobbling and, and wasteful vehicles that we, that at least of, of American made vehicles, I think. And, and that there's a kind of knowledge about that and a, and a pride in that for some people that like, we're, no, we're going to drive the most fuel consuming vehicles and so they have quite a, in a way, a, quite an uphill battle to to sell this new, greener vehicle to customers who maybe buy their cars precisely not to be green. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I guess in a sense, it's sort of an about face that way. But I'll tell you two moments that struck me. One was um, when Carl Sagan says, "Destroyer of civilizations," you see the plastic rings from from a soda can. So, of course, cars are not (laughs) implicated in any way, (laughs) shape or form. And then kind of the antidote to that is at the very end when he says, moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam, which Mm. is a reference to the earth. But what you see is the Jeep Mm -hmm. on the mountain ridge in a sunbeam 
that's to me, I mean, look, I don't want to completely take away from it because they're selling an electric vehicle and, you know, good for them for going for electric. But, but that's like when I feel like I've been stabbed in the heart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I was, I mean, you mentioned that Jeep right at the end and that one's so prominent, but I was, I, I was picking up on just the, the, a fascinating insinuation of the Jeep throughout this that, I mean, you first get it at 39 seconds with the Jeep on the seashore with a dog in the back and the driver is standing up. It looks like either taking a selfie or maybe consulting a, an astronomy star guide on their phone but that was the first instance, I think, of the Jeep. And then it keeps coming back about every, like, five or ten seconds, you get another Jeep. Some of them old, some of them more current. Yeah, there's this nostalgia that's woven through. The The image that struck me is the reference to romantic love, where you see this couple with flowers over the Jeep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's an older Jeep, I believe, right? Yeah. That, that's a, like, minute, like at one minute. Yeah. Wow. And then you get Marilyn Monroe. Right. So it's interesting um, that preserving the earth is also associated with this nostalgia, right? So it's like you're preserving something that isn't even anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, of course, that sounds a lot like Make America Great Again, too. Mm. Which Mm -hmm. is, I mean, you know, this is such a fascinating commercial because the politics and the the philosophy politics and philosophies embedded in this commercial are so ambiguous and they kind of switch you know without really signaling that like okay now we're you know now we're taking a a kind of holistic cosmopolitan view now we're going to be more nationalistic now we're going to be inclusive now we're going to be exclusive now we're going to be nostalgic now we're going to be forward-looking instead it's all just kind of bundled together yeah it's super ambitious what do you think about the fact that the message, well, first of all, they choose Carl Sagan, which is interesting, and that the message about saving the Earth starts with this image of Earth from space. Because even though, like, a lot of these, you know, wilderness with the car driving off-road kind of scenarios, you're often having these aerial shots and mm-hmm. so on, it's not exactly like a, a human-embodied experience, but... Nonetheless, you're kind of in nature, so to speak. But here, you're so distant. What, yeah. what do you think about that choice? Well, I think it raises another uncomfortable corollary that we haven't talked about yet, which is space travel. And if you think about the way this this commercial is framed, it's all about the view, the pale blue dot, the view from outer space back to Earth, which is also an interesting way to kind of naturalize and normalize space travel which is also a climate change driver, um, but it's one that we don't really like to talk about, or at least at the level of like like resources and what people nations spend money on. It's something that is that is at once like totally glossed here, but also assumed and kind of embedded as the foundation of this. And and you'll hear this, you know, this sort of like, well, we we've, we've got to get ready to leave. If, if, you know, if we can't fix Earth, we've got to get rid of the leave Earth and go find another civilization. Or, well, if we can, if we can figure out, you know, if there's water over there, we can maybe come back and help Earth. But the kind of relationship between, you know, taking care of this planet that we live on, that is our only home, and then a kind of insatiable need to send rockets out into space, which is also, you know, resource depleting and, and hugely expensive... It feels like another one of the contradictions is kind of embedded, which is that 
the message explicitly is we have one home and we have to preserve the home. But heck, there's space out there. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. In a last resort kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, um, what's the closing scene? The credit scene is proud sponsor of Cosmos Possible Worlds. I mean, right. that doesn't sound so bad. Mm. You know, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, this was. Can you, this, can you yeah. tell us a little bit about? I was fascinated in that article of yours that you sent me about this Tesla that was sent into space. I didn't know about that before reading your article. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, so when Elon Musk. Yeah, Falcon Heavy was the rocket. So it's February 6th of 2018, and Elon Musk launches successfully the Falcon Heavy in the direction of Mars, and it has his red Tesla convertible aboard it. And they have a, a mannequin in an astronaut suit named Starman, and they're blasting David Bowie's Starman on loop as it's flying toward Mars. So in this example, I was just so baffled by the kind of symbolic register or disconnect of sending a you know a terrestrial vehicle convertible at that like up into space with all this like semiotic richness that bespeaks you know human advanced consumer culture as a kind of like missive or or message to no one and for musk it was he was like well it was fun it was just fun to do but to me there was just something very chilling about it and in, in a way it kind of it kind of summarized the contradiction, I guess, that we're talking about with the Jeep ad, where it's it's both, you know, this is our only planet and we need to take care of it, but also like, hey, let's let's keep like let's go out and find another one to to ruin. <laughs> oh, Jesus! <laughs> oh my God! Oh, it makes me feel like like a like a a little sort of pulp of organic matter that's just not came. <laughs> <laughs> surviving in this reality. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed my interview with Chris Shaberg as much as I did. Before I go, I have a favor to ask of you. Please take a couple of minutes to write a positive review of In the Weeds on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I would really appreciate it. I'll be back soon with more on how culture shapes our relationship to the natural world. In the meantime, take care.